This week's episode is brought to you by the Disney DVD release of Gravity Falls, Six Strange Tales, available now on DVD. Hello and welcome to Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show and home of the world's first pair of independently born identical twins. I'm George. And I'm Jeff. So, so Jeff, I was listening to the voicemails the other day. It looks like we got uh, one from somebody named Eisner. Yeah, it was really weird. Um, I've, I've never heard of this guy before. Maybe, yeah. you know, let's, let's just play it. Okay. Hello, boys. It's your old friend Eisner. And I just wanted you to know, I've been watching you, and I will destroy you. Uh, talk to you soon. Bye. Well, now. Okay. That was a little weird. Yeah, I, I, well, I'm looking behind me right now. Just, just in case. Nobody's there, so. Well, that's good to know. Well, that's interesting. I guess we'll have to get his, um address and mail him a, a Communicore weekly cadet button. Yeah, sure. And speaking of, don't don't forget, you can uh, still give us a call and leave a, a voicemail on the Communicore weekly hotline at 424-785-4628 if you want to leave a voicemail as well, and we can send you a button also. Yeah, and we'll, we'll try to use it on a future mailbag episode. Yeah, if- just don't threaten us like that last one did. That was a little weird. Really creep. I mean, I guess you should be more creeped out because you're probably closer to where he is. That's true. That is very true. Now, now, did the call come from inside the house? No. Now I'm gonna have to check. Now, uh, now you're having me a little paranoid. Ooh. Yeah, I'm. I'm a little worried. Maybe we should move on with the show and talk about something. Uh, yeah, let's do that. Take my mind off it. It's time for Disney history. The Golf Resort was one of the first three Walt Disney World resorts. It lasted from 1973 to 1986 when it was converted to the Disney Inn with a decidedly Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs theme. Uh, A lot of speculation on the change in resort theming centers on the ideas that the the theme of golf really never found its audience and the resort was fairly landlocked. So unlike the Polynesian and Contemporary and really even Fort Wilderness, the amenities weren't all there. There were fewer places to eat and absolutely no water recreation outside of a swimming pool. And I guess your hotel bathtub in yeah, your room. That basically means there's no bob around boats. That's yeah, there's no, there were no bob around boats, so, you know, thumbs down. Uh, there were many complaints from the time that said it was easier to walk to the Polynesian, which was a 15-minute walk, and grab the monorail than it was to wait on an actual bus. Uh, if they only knew how long it took Walt Disney World buses today. Yeah, <clears throat> a little yeah. bit longer than that. But. A little bit longer. So, why did the Disney Inn suffer a lack of marketing and attendance? Well, did most golfers want to stay at the more family-friendly resorts and then travel to the golf resort slash Disney Inn to hit the links? You know, in all honesty, it had a lot of issues with its poor attendance. Uh, simply, the lack of marketing done by Walt Disney World for the resort was probably the main issue. And if you think about it now, how many of you have actually heard of the golf resort or the Disney Inn before this segment actually started? That kind of proves our point, I think. 
Yeah, I mean, you heard the silence. Nobody responded. Exactly. Nobody, 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 nobody responded. responded. So. Okay. <laughs> All right. So the Disney Inn, according to uh, the few marketing materials that we've been able to find, was a serene hideaway nestled in a peaceful corner corner of the world. Beautiful poolside fountains, rustic charm, and a country inn make the Disney Inn a real getaway from the hustle and bustle of everyday life. <laughs> Here we go. Plus, convenient Disney transportation will get you to the Magic Kingdom or Epcot Center whenever you want. And those quotes are all from the Walt Disney World Resort Vacation Guide from 1987. Whatever you want, provided it's on their schedule. That's, <laughs> exactly. That should have been the asterisk at the end of it. So, also according to the guide, uh, you can enjoy tennis, jogging, swimming, sunbathing, golf on the Palm and Magnolia courses, a quiet walk along tree-lined paths, and a good old rest and relaxation. So, when it's time for some something mouth-watering, the Garden Gallery would satisfy with an impressive menu and a beautiful sunlit atmosphere. And as a, a great tagline for the resort, pro Disney promoted it like this. Fill your next vacation with Disney fun and nature's beauty at the Disney Inn in the heart of our world. But really far away. But really far from everything you want to see. Yeah, we added that last part, not yeah. Disney. Yeah. That was this is why we're not in marketing. Well, I'm actually in marketing, but this, well, yeah, but slightly different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that that's patented Communicore Weekly snark. Okay. <laughs> well, golf and Walt Disney World have always been linked. Uh, 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 I see what uh, you did there. I uh, uh, tried that since since the resort opened. The Championship Palm and Magnolia Golf Courses have hosted the Walt Disney World Golf Classic since the opening in 1971. Uh, however, the golf resort, which opened in December of 1973, was an intimate 125-room resort located off the monorail route but adjacent to the Magic Kingdom. Uh, it was surrounded by the woods, lawns and fields of the two golf courses, the resort had a lush and secluded appeal and an intimacy of service unlike any of the other resort properties. And when you think about it, it's really not surprising to learn that many of the Walt Disney Productions, the Wet Enterprises, and the Walt Disney Attractions executives were actually avid golfers. You know, in February uh, 1986, another 150 guest rooms were added to the resort, and its name was changed then to the Disney Inn, uh, because research revealed that many guests thought that the resort was a golfers-only retreat, and of course, that was not the case. Uh, it was not good for their marketing, clearly. Yeah. So one of the new hotels I've heard they're opening, Jeff, is the uh, Pin Traders resort then they've oh. got the vinyl the vinylmation resort see you know so i guess we can't go there because we're neither of those things well no they're open for everybody oh but i'm not gonna go because they cater to that one audience now there you go see you that's go. that that was a marketing idea that we just had just now that was that was a, conver a simulated conversation that was basically <laughs> like that 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 was you being in the brain trust that's what we we're trying to do for you that's what we we're trying to do that's not a yep. fake rumor <laughs> not a fake rumor okay let's let's move along so okay, okay. go on well after the name change, a remodel had given the Disney in a new look. Guest rooms were redecorated, including dividers that were separating the sleeping area from the section that had the sofa and a table to give each room sort of like a, a mini suite feel. There was a quilt on each bed, furniture made of light oak, and floral accents added to a basic countryfied feeling. The Disney Inn also had a pleasantly relaxed atmosphere, more akin to that of the villas at the Disney Village Resort, but the Disney Inn was considerably more convenient to the main activities of Walt Disney World. Uh, buses, here we go again, make the short trip between the Disney Inn, the Polynesian Village Resort, and the Transportation and Ticket Center every 15 minutes. I wonder if so. they actually stuck to that 15-minute guideline, because they certainly <laughs> do not stick to that today. 
No, no, no. <clears throat> so for the eateries there, the Bright Garden Gallery was one of the most pleasant spots in the entirety of Walt Disney World for a meal. Many Disney executives actually, they frequented the Garden Gallery for lunch because even when the crowds at the other resort restaurants were big, tables were always tended to be family, uh, fairly quiet here at the Garden Gallery. And the, the menu focused on American cuisine. They also had uh, fresh seafood, uh, fresh vegetables, and all the dishes were prepared with some very light sauces. I don't know what those sauces were, but they were light sauces. Yeah, they just didn't weigh much. Yeah, yeah. Like me. So, <laughs> skinny Jeff. <laughs> so at breakfast, there was an abundant all-you-can-eat buffet. Lunch featured a varied salad bar plus individual menu selections. And the dinner menu featured several fresh seafood selections plus beef, veal, and fowl. Wow. Yummy. Yeah. Uh, there was a seafood bar with oyster, shrimp, and crab claws. So, yeah, this is... I don't know. Not hitting my palate at no, all. Nothing you okay. really want there? Nah. Well, maybe the beef. Okay. Okay. I'm not a seafood guy, but that's okay. Well, uh, don't worry, Jeff. There was also a children's menu. Yes. Uh-huh. I can I eat mac and cheese. Here yes. I come. And chicken fingers. Chicken fingers. Don't eat my chicken fingers. They're mine. No, don't touch them. So. Well, and there was also the sand trap, which was a poolside snack bar for drinks, sandwiches, hot dogs, and chips which is probably where I would have spent most of my time. And uh, the the back porch was an adjoining, it, it adjoined the garden gallery and was a light and airy spot that was lovely for a drink. Now, the Disney Inn was actually leased from Disney in February 1994 and then purchased outright in 1996 because of, uh, believe it or not, military downsizing. So the military actually bought this place. Since more and more military personnel are stationed stateside, uh, having affordable recreation opportunities is considered uh, kind of necessary for morale. So they renamed it the Shades of Green, and the inn is now open only to active, retired, and reserve members of the armed services and civilian employees of the military. And the army runs similar hotels in South Korea, uh, in Germany, and Hawaii, but Shades of Green is the first such operation in the continental United States, and is, uh, it is staged by non-Disney civilians, and it is self-supporting. So it's part of the Disneyland Resort, or, sorry, the Walt Disney World Resort. <laughs> Man, that was a mouthful. I'm going to kick for that one. It's, it's part of the Walt Disney World Resort, but it's not actually part of it. It's run by the military. So you've got... <laughs> you know, Walt Disney World Resort, you know, which is part of the Reedy Creek Improvement District, which isn't really part. Well, anyways, you know, we'll get all timey-wimey. Inceptions. Yeah. Wom. Okay. Wom. <laughs> so after the 1996 purchase, there were a few more changes to the restaurants. Uh, the Garden Gallery would be renamed the Disney Inn Restaurant. There would also be the introduction of the Diamond Mine, which was a snack spot offering sandwiches, beer, salads, sodas, and more. So according to the 1994 Souvenir Guide, Strollers can enjoy the view of the surrounding gardens from a lovely gazebo. Rolling green lawns and a lovely lakeside gazebo invite strollers to linger, while friendly ducks looking for a handout elicit laughter from younger guests. That's my marketing voice, by the way. That was pretty good. It was good, Not right? bad. Well, Not I bad. I practice. I practice. But in this case, I'm pretty sure strollers means people who are walking and not the <laughs> sea of carriages that you will find by It's a Small World. Two completely different things. But um, there was also the Happy Hollows Recreation Center, which had the grist mill, which provided a perfect New England country inn setting for old-fashioned family together time. Now, I have never stayed there before. It looked quite lovely in the photographs. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish I had the time machine to go check it out at least once, because it, it's just one of those places that, you know, I would like to go see. Ooh, yeah, it's on. I can now. M- Martina's family is... Uh, retired military, so I can check that place out. Oh, oh! I thought you meant like go back in time. I was like, wait oh, a minute. Wait, I, oh, that's right. I forgot to tell you about that time machine I bought off the internet. <laughs> George, I bought a time I, machine I, off the internet. 
Did you, did you get the flux capacitor nope. version or? Nope. Ooh. It's a surprise. I'll show you yesterday what I got. Good. I, I can't wait for the trip report. He's a nerd. He's a geek. But we all like to hear him speak. So listen up to the words from his speech. It's George's Book of the Week. So it seems like Disney Editions is publishing one flagship title a year. Last year, it was the spectacular poster art of Disney Parks. And when word came out that Disney was releasing a book detailing the history of Tinkerbell, I had my fingers crossed for the best. So this book is Tinkerbell and Evolution by Mindy Johnson. Um, this book is really it's a deeply satisfying read about the iconic Disney pixie. Uh, it's relatively easy to compare this book to J.B. Kaufman's Ferris One of Them All, since it features a similar progression in looking at Tinkerbell's history pre-Disney, uh, the development of the Peter Pan film that launched her, and everything post-Peter Pan. And it's a style that works very well, especially with the character that Disney did not create. Okay, so, so the book itself is comprised of three acts that follow Tinkerbell's origin, the Peter Pan film, and everything after the film, which sadly does include the recent Pixie Hollow films, but we'll cover that a little bit later. So the meatiest chunk of the book, over 110 of the 192 pages, is dedicated to the Peter Pan animated film that was released in 1953. This does make the most sense since the creation of the Pixie within the confines of the film is most directly tied to the company itself. Okay, so the first section, Act 1, is called The World's Most Famous Fairy. It is an incredibly wonderful look back at J.M. Barry and the creation of Peter Pan. Uh, it's not exhaustive, but it covers enough of Barry's life and work to create an understanding of how and why the author created the pixie. There were, there were several eye-opening moments in the text and many photos from Barry's life that helped propel the story. And we learn how the Scottish travelers and the young boys of the Llewellyn Davis family influenced Barry's earliest works and the specific tales and characters in Peter Pan. Okay, so the development of the play itself at the beginning is really fascinating, especially seen in today's light. Uh, the play was continuously worked on and added to by Barry during the first few years, and it gained a lot of popularity, and as it made its way to larger stages in film, really, really uh, found a lot of various stars in theaters where it was performed. So the 1924 silent version by Paramount Pictures was actually lauded for the special effects, considered groundbreaking, and directly influenced the Walt Disney himself when making his animated version of the film. So Act Two, The Boy Who Wouldn't Grow Up, specifically focuses on the development of Peter Pan, uh, the film itself, over an almost 20 year period. And of course, more specifically, the creation and evolution of Tinkerbell. Um, Mark Davis, the legendary animator and Imagineer, is credited with her final look, but he gladly steps in to share his influences, which include many of the animators that had a hand in Tinkerbell's design, including Bianca Majoli, David Hall, Mary Blair, and John Jack Miller. And hopefully a few of those names are familiar. Uh, Act 3, the final section, is called Flying to New Horizons and covers everything after Peter Pan to the new Pixie Hollow films. A large part of this section is dedicated to Tinkerbell at Disneyland, uh, through her promotional material and in-park appearances. And it's almost mind-boggling to see how many Disneyland items Tink showed up on. Uh, we also see other products that Tink helped hawk. Wow, that's tongue twister. Like uh, Peter Pan peanut butter and her limited comic book appearances, which I had no idea she'd been in a comic book. Uh, the last section, thankfully, is rather small and looks at the current state of the Pixie. Uh, I'm not going to comment on the Pixie Hollow releases, mainly because I really 
don't care about them. Uh, but there are very few pages dedicated to them itself. It, it really seemed more like a way to keep Tinkerbell in the public eye and create another uh, princess franchise, so to speak. And uh, on a side note, this is the second book this year from Disney Editions that has a very odd picture. Uh, the Roy E. Disney book is really good, but many of the photos are fuzzy or pixelated. And I ran across a photo on page 186 of the Tinkerbell book, and it is incredibly pixelated, too, like they took it from a website, which is really odd. I found some mistakes in Disney published books this year, and it's been very disappointed. But that shouldn't stop you from buying this book. Overall, I really loved it. It is a fantastic, incredibly detailed look at our favorite pixie and the cultural phenomenon that she is. Uh, and I'd love to see one see someone tackle Peter Pan and many of the other animated features uh, in the same vein as this book and J.B. Kaufman's works. But this is a great book for Tinkerbell fans or anyone with an interest in Disney animation history. And it is called Tinkerbell and Evolution by Mindy Johnson. What we liked, what we didn't like, yeah, in the booze, 60-second review! Okay, for this week's 60-second review, we're looking at the latest Disney DVD release for Gravity Falls, Six Strange Tales. I didn't really say that real spooky enough. No, you should have said it much more spooky, but yeah, that's okay. Yeah, but that's okay. This is a uh, DVD release of the fairly popular show that was on the Disney Channel. Sort of like an, a kid's version of the X-Files. I want to say X-Files meets Erie, Indiana in the middle oh, of nowhere. That's pretty good. That's yeah. actually a pretty good response to it. So um, we're both big fans of it. I know I caught a bunch of when it came out originally and then dropped off and then started catching up a few other ones. But Jeff, you're, proud of, you're, you're more of a slobbering fan with this. Yeah, yeah. I've seen most of them at this point. So when this showed up, I was like, this is excellent. I love the show. Um, <laughs> I think it's very hilarious. I think it's very nicely done. I think it's another one, it has the same Phineas and Ferb vibe where there's stuff in there that <laughs> kids will find funny, but there's also uh, jokes that adults will find humorous as well. Yes. Um, and I, I think the show overall is fantastic. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it follows um, two twins, uh, Dipper and Mabel Pines, and they're sort of shuttled off to their uh, grunkle, their great uncle. Their great uncle. Grunkle. Grunkle Stan, who's, who runs the mystery shack. In, um, in Gravity Falls, Oregon. And you know, what I love about the show is there are so many little hidden things. Uh, in the intro, there's a little hidden phrase at the end of every episode that you have to sort of decode and figure out. And there's supposed to be lots of clues throughout it. And it's just got a great, you know, you wanna watch it at night, little spooky type show. Uh, great characters, I love the voice acting. You know, uh, this this episode, this DVD set does include six episodes. Yes. The first six. Which, and here here's the, the downside. I wish it would have included all of them. That's my only gripe with the DVD I, set. Yeah, yeah, I'm surprised too. It's, it's one I think we both enjoyed and we'd like to recommend it, but I wanted to see more. Uh, there were no special editions. There were a couple of um, uh, Easter eggs. I was trying to think if there was a better term besides Easter eggs. Now that, that's the best term for it. <laughs> With Gravity Falls. But if you move the uh, uh, the controller around on the screen or the remote control, you'll see little spiders and you click on them and they'll run a, a, a small little screen of something. Or you can cheat and put it in your computer and use your mouse to find them. Ooh, that'll work too. That'll see, work too. It makes it a lot but, easier. But even the, you know, the 14-year-old and 9-year-old were kind of like, yeah, this is kind of blasé. They, they enjoyed the show. We love the show. You know, They were watching it, sat with us and watched the whole thing and really enjoyed it. Uh, but I think it would have been nice to have a little bit of extras, maybe 
a look at the writers or what we're seeing. Even the voice, you know, the, the yeah. voice actors in, in their, you know, the booth recording. I think that would have been cool to see that because I think the voice acting is really fantastic and it seems like they have a, a lot of fun with it. So I would have enjoyed seeing them at work. Yeah, that would have been nice to do that. Um, you know, when you mentioned it's got that Phineas and Ferb vibe, it's something I like to. Uh, we've seen a lot with a lot of the shows lately on the Disney channels are getting a lot smarter, and not just going after the kid audience, but whole families. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It doesn't have the songs like Phineas and Ferb. No, but have, that's okay. Yeah, it's got great characters. Uh, you really get to know them and feel for them. And <laughs> as much as I like watching Uncle Stan, I. I'm not sure how much I feel about him being a flim flam man at some point. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, I like you, Grunkle Stan, but still. So. But still. But overall, uh, I love it. I think it's great. I think it's definitely worth picking up. I think so, too. I think you'll enjoy especially if you've got some younger kids that might be into more of the, as Jeff mentioned, more of the X-Files meets uh, eerie Indiana side. Sometimes you might see it, sometimes you don't. Hey, look, what's that? It's a five-legged goat. In the Main Street Confectionery at Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom, near the fudge counter, you'll find a program for the 1893 Columbian World Exposition in Chicago. The proprietors of the shop, Thomas and Kitty McCrum, were actually amazed by the new mechanical inventions that they saw at the fair, and Thomas kind of looked at the mechanization of the fudge or candy on their return, so examples of his machines that he created for it on display behind the fudge counter. Also, it should be noted that Walt's fa father, Elias, was a contractor at that very, uh, very World's Fair. You know, I like it when the five-legged goats are sort of, they make you go, huh. You don't see them right off the bat. Yeah, there's a lot of research yeah, that has to be done behind them, really, to kind of get it. together. Yes. And that's just because we're pretty amazing. And and nerdy. But we'll go with amazing. Yeah, we'll go with that one. Unless we, a nerd-mazing? Nerd-mazing. We'll call it that way, so. Well, okay, I guess that's time to wrap things up then. So thank you guys so much for watching and listening to us. Yeah, be sure to leave us a comment and rate us on iTunes. Let us know how geek-tastic we are. See, I just added a new one right there. Another one. Very nice. Okay, and you can always email us at communicorweekly at gmail.com, and we're happy to be emailed almost anything. Yeah, for the most part. I like getting emails. You can also like us on the Facebook at facebook.com slash communicorweekly. Yep, and follow us on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Imagineerding, and he's at Jeff Heimbuck. You can also call us in the Communicore Weekly Hotline at 424-785-4628. Leave us a voicemail. We'd love to hear from you. Yep. And for Jeff Heimbuck, I'm George Taylor. And for George Taylor, I'm Jeff Heimbuck. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time on Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show.